Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. The late Molly Ivins, who died of cancer in early 2007 at the age of 62, was a force of nature. In her newspaper columns and reportage, and in her books, she was sharp, funny, and incredibly astute about politics. In the play Red Hot Patriot, the kick-ass wit of Molly Ivins, Kathleen Turner gave voice to this larger-than-life figure, and now opening this month is the documentary film Raise Hell, The Life and Times of Molly Ivins. I had the opportunity to interview Molly Ivins twice, first in 1998 and then again in 2003 for Bushwhack. My special guest is Molly Ivins, who's the co-author with Lou Dubose of Bushwhacked, Life in George W. Bush's America. Together they also wrote Shrub, The Short But Happy Political Life of George W. Bush. The scary thing there is that every single prediction, Molly Ivins, that you made about his presidency came true, which we'll go into in a minute. Right. Also the author of You Got to Dance with Them, What Brung You, Nothing But Good Times Ahead, and Molly Ivins can't say that, can she? Molly Ivins, Bushwhacked, what you do in Bushwhacked is, by taking an example, you broaden the example and we learn one more horror about George Bush's America today. Before we get into some of the examples there, I read your book in a day. The day after that, I read Michael Moore's book. About two weeks earlier, I read Al Franken's book. Several months ago, I read Alterman's book on the media. When you're writing this, or when Franken is, or more. What are we getting? What's going on here? We just like talking well, about think I think there may be an extent to which the worm has turned. Okay. Uh, the bestseller lists have been dominated by right-wing authors uh, like Goldberg, who wrote Bias, and Coulter, who wrote Treason, all attacking liberals and blaming liberals for absolutely everything that's gone wrong uh, since the Earth's crust cooled. And just by accident, a whole bunch of us, somewhere between six and eight, depending on how you count, have have books coming out that are critical of Bush and the administration at the same time. And I assure you, it was entirely uh, an accident. And when I first realized it, and I have not read all of them, but I've skimmed all of them, um, I was sort of thinking, oh, gosh, all these other people have Bush books. They're going to be saying exactly the same things that Lou and I are saying. You know, they're going to have our story about this, and they're going to have a story about that. What's really surprising is how little overlap there is. Whether the books are funny or somber, they all approach it in a different way, and there is practically no repetition uh, in <laughs> in this chorus of writers saying, look, it doesn't make any difference whether Bush himself is an evil person. The problem is that his policies are having dreadful effects on people's lives. I remember uh, last summer I was talking to my 13-year-old nephew, and uh, he said, but what about the way Bush thinks about, and I said, you don't get it. It doesn't matter what Bush thinks. Do you agree with that? 
Well, I'm, to a certain extent, I don't like to be classified as a Bush hater because I've known him for a long time, and I don't think he's he's a rotten, miserable person. I just think his policies are dreadful. Um, there's an extent to which uh, Bush is... He's not stupid and he's not mean, but you can only go so far with him. The classic example, the day Carla Faye Tucker, that woman in Texas, was executed... Right. Um, he was actually very troubled by that case, and as it happened, he was flying from Austin up to a day in North Texas, and for an hour and a half on the way up and an hour and a half on the way back, he, he had a serious discussion about the death penalty with uh, a friend who is very well informed and opposed to the death penalty. And they argued it up one side and down the other, and just before they landed back in Austin, Bush said, I know there is no evidence that shows that the death penalty is a deterrent but I just feel in my gut that it must be true. Now, here you're dealing with someone where there is a cutoff point for fact and logic, where there is a point with him where fact and logic are not persuasive. And whenever you hear Bush say, I feel in my gut or it's my instinct, uh, you're in trouble. He has stopped thinking. How does that work with the corruption, the levels of corruption? For example, Bush's inability or his not caring about offshore tax evasion or Halliburton's sweetheart deal to go into Iraq or the gutting of the SEC or anything involving corruption and his pals. I mean, how do you rationalize that? How do you say it's in my gut? It's, yeah, it's, I'm in a funny position to find myself actually defending George W., which is not my usual posture, as you know. Um, but I would say of Bush that he is in a happy position for a fellow uh, who's in politics, which is that his worldview actually uh, agrees with that of his large corporate donors. In other words, nobody's bribing him to take these positions. Nobody, the fact that he's got, getting a lot of money for taking these positions doesn't affect him. He would be doing this. Uh, that's what he would actually believe. And there's another part of it, too. There's a, a tacky Texas expression, which I'll clean up for you all, which is uh, the guy thinks his own stuff doesn't stink. And we saw this in Texas many times, where he just, he doesn't see his own conflicts of interest. He doesn't recognize that he himself is culpable in, in large ways. I mean, one uh, just totally ironic example was after Enron and WorldCom and all that big mess, um, Bush's political people said, you know, you have to do something about this. This is their, oh, everybody's bothered about this. So he went up to New York to the stock exchange there made this big speech about corporate responsibility and you knew it was about corporate responsibility because he was standing in front of a large screen that had the words corporate responsibility <laughs> printed over and over in case you should have, like missed the point there and watching bush preach to corporate executives yeah um on it was like watching a whore pretending to be dean of the smu school of theology i mean here he was accusing them of doing things that he had done himself repeatedly. But the guy thinks his own stuff don't stink. The entire Harkin story is, as you, you call it, it's, it's Enron in miniature. And you don't just say that. I mean, yeah. Hightower goes through the same details as well. This is common knowledge, though. He says it's past. It's not. Right. Um, and that's, that's the irony of Bush's last oil company. He took several of them into bankruptcy, and the last one was Harkin. Um, and it really was a perfect little miniature Enron. Uh, all the same insider dealing, all the same, you know, top guys dumping their stock on inside knowledge. 
but a lot smaller. Again, with Bush, I think he doesn't get the fact that giving a no-bid contract to Halliburton stinks. The, 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 the fact he doesn't even notice the appearance of impropriety. I don't think it, it just doesn't occur to him because he thinks like a corporate executive. I mean, that, you know, that's his worldview. That's where he comes from. That's who he is. So why do people buy this? I mean, why? Do, it's one of the things that astonishes me is when I see these polls and people say the man is likable. I can't stand to watch him. <laughs> it's like I look at this guy and, you know, Caterpillar or do is coming out of his He eyes. is perfectly affable. I mean, if you knew him, you'd, you have to work at it to dislike the guy. Really? You might not have to work at it that hard because <laughs> if, if you really dislike his policies, as I certainly do. Um, but I think grown-ups are capable of making a distinction between somebody they disagree with politically as a human being and, and the policies. And what's, I think what matters... It's not what kind of person Bush is, whether he's personally a lousy, crummy person, which I don't think he is, um, although I think he's very, very limited in his worldview. And the fact that it, I, his policies are just disastrous for people, particularly on the corporate governance issue, that was classic Bush. Um, there was such an outcry, such an outrage after Enron crashed, WorldCom, and all the rest of them, that... A bill sailed through Congress. It was called the Sarbanes-Oxley Bill. Uh, Senator Paul Sarbanes of Maryland, who's a really pretty good guy, wrote this bill calling for some serious revamping of corporate governance and calling on the SEC to really get on the stick and make sure more of this over-looting of people's life savings didn't continue. And that bill was so, that issue was so hot that the bill went sailing through Congress. It went through the House of Representatives, the more conservative of the two bodies, with a one single vote cast against it. Bush had opposed that bill every step of the way. When it went sailing through the House of Representatives, he turned around and signed it and claimed credit for it. If you're a politician, if you study politics, you say, oh, shrewd move, like that one, the old, <laughs> the old turn around and claim credit for what you didn't do deal. Um, but with Bush, you could see that even the crash of something as large as Enron, and of course he was very close to Ken Lay, who was his largest single campaign contributor. To ignore that, um, to think that, you know, more, we need more deregulation, we need m to not care about the fact that corporations have, uh, you know, acquired post boxes in the Bahamas and the Cayman Islands in order to escape American taxes, just to not see the contradiction there is so amazing to me. I have a friend who um, once said to me, this is before he was educated, in certain things. He said, I just read that the world's oceans are being fished out. That's impossible. Now, of course, he knows it's not impossible. Right. And I keep thinking that first sentence describes George W. Bush. Yeah, I think it does to a large extent. I think provincialism is a universal characteristic, but I must say that my state and the people in it are unusually provincial. Very Texas-centered, uh, tend to be much more ignorant of the rest of the world than people should be. And Bush is sort of a classic example of the kind of guy you meet at the Midland Petroleum Club. You have dinner with those guys, you'll come away thinking to yourself, those are the nicest fellows in the whole world. I sure am glad they are not running the world. 
And that's sort of the way I feel about W. Bush. He's a perfectly fine fellow. Who in the name of heaven ever thought of letting him run the country? What a terrible idea. One of the points in your book is the ways in which the Bush administration has done us in. One is obvious, putting right-wingers in position of power, letting um, corporate wolves guard the hen house. Another is through a process of underfunding in order to let things die. And when I hear, as you describe in your book, the way the super fund for environmental cleanups has been massacred so there's no money in it once once again unnoticed on the media radar screen on the last day of the fiscal year september 30th the superfund went broke there is not a single dime left in it and what that means it had been funded by attacks on chemical companies who were responsible of course for making these messes in the first place and where there is what is legally known as a responsible party, in other words, there's a huge chemical slop pit throwing off poisonous fumes, destroying the environment, hurting people's health. If there, if we know who did it, if it was Monsanto or Dow or Exxon or whoever, we can hold them responsible. If, as has frequent, as frequently happened, you can't identify who's responsible. It's some fly-by-night operator in New Jersey who never followed anybody's rules and has long since departed this world, then this special tax that went into the Superfund cleanup fund is what you the government used to clean those orphan, they're right. called orphan sites they used to clean up with. Well, now, not only is there no money for orphan sites, but here's how the Superfund worked. The government would say, for example, I'm just using this as a hypothetic, uh, as they say in the legislature, to Monsanto, okay, you guys made this mess at a certain point in Colorado. You have to clean it up. And if you don't, we will come in and clean it up, and we will charge you three times as much as it costs us. Okay, they are left with zero money to do any cleanup. That means nothing is happening. That means that if a love canal is found, it cannot get cleaned up. There's no money to clean it up that at all. That is exactly correct. One thing I find fascinating about the way the media reports on... Um, Halliburton and or on the Iraq, the $87 billion in Iraq, is nobody is mentioning the amount of money that is going into the corporate coffers from that $87 billion. Well, that, in fact, they are having a bit of a, a, a mud fight about that in Washington. Uh, there's at least $20 billion that is going to the corporations. It's not for military purposes. And ironically, much of the objection is coming from Iraqis themselves. They're looking at these gold-plated contracts that the big American construction companies are getting. You know, right. like Bechtel or somebody comes in and says, it will cost us $6 million to repair this bridge. And suddenly a bunch of Iraqi construction companies pop up and say, we can do it for 60000 What's wrong with you people? But in that particular case, the, the 50 million people got the contract, exactly. didn't they? I exactly. Mean, and, and on a no-bid basis. And on a no-bid basis. Is, which is yeah. just an open scandal. And I, why the Democrats have not raised more hell about that is beyond me. Well, I wonder. Uh, I wonder also the culpability of Democrats in all this. I mean, we—it's mentioned in Hightower's book, but you don't mention it. Is Lieberman's culpability in the entire stock options scandal? Lieberman, uh, in fact, was um, a major uh, defender of corporate wrongdoers. Um, he very heavily and debted to the big companies in his home state and uh, was not at all useful as a player on that issue. 
Um, there is a technical term that those of us who are real insiders use to describe what is wrong with the Democrats. It's gutlessness. A term of art, you understand. Right. Um, I've never seen anything like it. I said just plain old lack of backbone. And then, of course, you know, we always sort of say wistfully, well, Wellstone stood up. Wellstone fought. You're listening to an interview with Molly Ivins, co-author of Bushwhacked. What did Lou DeBose have to do with Bushwhacked? Um, Lou and I uh, have written two books together. He's a terrific reporter, former editor of the Texas Observer, and not only a great reporter, but um, he is completely fluent in Spanish, which we find helpful a lot in Texas and elsewhere. Um, and also he has a singular gift for drawing out people. I mean, all reporters try to be good at interviewing and sympathetic to people who are not, you know, come from different walks of life and background and don't necessarily have a college education and all that. But there are some of us who have a genuine gift for for drawing out people like that, people who are not particularly articulate about their own lives. Suddenly, under Lou's benign, spaniel, brown-eyed gaze, um, we'll just start talking. And we got the most amazing things came out of people's mouths. Was that the uh, the Republican rancher? One, one of them, um, we, we talked to a Republican rancher in the corner of Wyoming, um, this guy is, <laughs> he's like some stereotype. He was the chairman of the county Republican Party, a member of the National Rifle Association, uh, the typical Western rancher. On top of everything else, the guy looks like the Marlboro Cowboy. And he, uh, he had inherited a ranch he wanted to pass on to his son. He'd worked at it all his life, and in the immemorial fashion of true Westerners, he didn't accept any help from the government. He did it all himself arranged the irrigation himself. He and his kid worked at this for years. And then one day, the creek that waters his place started to poison the grass. And the grass died off. They had to sell off the cattle. And the guy, it turns out the problem is that upstream, there were some operators doing very carelessly cold bed methane drilling for a kind of gas that's very popular. It's a hot, hot play, as they say, in the mining biz. And this guy winds up suing the government over the fact that they're the ones that opened up um, the drilling to these operators. As he said, ironically, he's paying his own lawyers to sue the government, and as a taxpayer, he's paying the lawyers to defend the government against the case being brought by the lawyers he's paying. And he finds out that the guy who's in charge of the whole policy is was, uh, until Bush appointed him to the Department of Interior, was the chief lobbyist for the Coal Bed Methane Operators Association. So is this guy going to vote for Bush next time? Though? I don't think so. What brings up a question here? How do Republicans feel about this guy? I mean, do regular Republicans plan on voting for him from what you've seen? Well, I think that more and more people are making the connections between what is happening in their lives and decisions made in Washington, D.C. I must say there was not a not very subtle didactic purpose uh, when we wrote this book. We got so discombobulated by hearing people constantly saying, well, I just don't care about politics. You know, it doesn't have anything to do with me. There's nothing I can do about it. And what we wanted to do was just connect the dots and say, here is something that is seriously wrong with your life, and it is the direct result of a decision made by a specific bureaucrat in a specific agency. And in a couple of cases, it actually cost people's lives. Improbably enough, we were amazed to find that. 
And I do think that people are starting to make the connection. I think there's been a lot of rallying to the president because of 9-11, because we always rally by the, behind the president in time of war. Uh, everybody wants to be, you know, good, loyal American and, and um, wave the flag and be real patriotic. Well, people are starting to ask questions now. I mean, we were told that we went into Iraq because there were weapons of mass destruction and Saddam Hussein had a nuclear weapons program and a whole bunch of stuff that just turned out to be flat not true. Does Bush know he's lying when he makes the connection between al-Qaeda and Saddam Hussein? Does Cheney know he's lying? Did Powell? Um, I think in Cheney's case, and this is something, again, I almost am, I'm going to sound like I'm defending Bush, but I, I think it is useful to sort of try to keep some of this in perspective. All George W.'s life, every time he started in a new area, he has chosen an older male mentor. He had a couple of them in the oil business. He had Richard Rainwater in finance. He had Bob Bullock, our late lieutenant governor in Texas politics. And I think Dick Cheney is probably the first time he made the wrong choice. And I'm not saying that it's you know, the puppet and the puppet master. But I do think that Cheney knew more about Washington and its ways than Bush did when he went up there. I think he relied heavily on Cheney, who always sounds like the most authoritative person imagine. He's, he's like Henry Kissinger. Every word drops from his mouth with great <laughs> gravitas. So I think that Bush was led to some extent or misled by people around him. What confuses me is that Karl Rove, who's one of the smartest political operators I've ever watched, would make such an elementary mistake, which is I think what happened in the lead up to the war was they started listening only to themselves. It was a closed loop. Wolfowitz, Cheney, Rumsfeld, and they all said exactly the same thing, and they all reinforced one another, and they all convinced one another, and nobody was listening to anybody outside the loop. Now, anyone who knows politics knows that that is a real good way to get yourself in deep trouble. I recall uh, the last time that I spoke with you with my uh, co-host, Richard Lupoff, at that point, you had said you'd stayed in Washington. You were in Washington for a few weeks because I'd asked you about the punditry, and you said, without ever wanting to, you kind of got drawn into that same circle, oh, and it was like so the world maddening. didn't exist. It's a city where everybody says exactly what everybody else says. And when I go to Washington, instead of coming in and saying, now listen, y'all, I am straight in from the prairies of Texas, and you people are just full of it, I'm not there for more than 10 minutes before I find myself saying exactly what everybody else in Washington is saying. It drives me totally crazy. That's one reason I avoid that place. But I do think they tend to get into fights in Washington that aren't about people's lives. In other words, they're sort of like scorpions in a bottle. They're all, you know, seeking and clawing for advantage vis-a-vis -vis one another. And nobody's stopping to think about how this is really impacting people's lives. I think in the case of the really ideological Republicans with the people who call themselves movement conservatives, um, it's because they don't believe that government does affect people's lives. Um, I mean, they don't believe in government at all. It used to be when I started as a political reporter, now I'm going to sound like one of those, when I was young, things were better kind of people. But it's true. I started 35 years ago, and sort of the way you reported politics was by saying, okay, y'all, the government is fixing to do X or Y, and here's how it's going to affect you. And what's gotten lost is the second part of that sentence. Here's how it's going to affect you. So political reporters write more and more about campaign consultants, fundraising, polls, the horse race. They don't write about how it is affecting people. 
Is that the, a fault, do you think, of just being in Washington? Is it a fault of the education? What, what do you think is causing something like that? Well, I'm, there is a certain extent to which political reporters, instead of making the classic error, which is you're always supposed to think about your reader, um, judge themselves by how other political reporters judge them. And there, of course, you, you get a cutoff from reality. And Washington seems to me a, an excessively precious place, an excessively polarized political place. And I'm telling you what really troubles me. I think that the polar, political polarization has gone so far in Washington that it's not even politics as we have always known it anymore. So talking to someone who noted uh, this was about the Texas redistricting fight, Steve, talking about Republicans, he said, these people don't want to govern. They want to rule. It's as though, you know, you spend your time sitting there looking at them and thinking, boy, what is these people's strategy? And then suddenly you realize thinking that they are playing a completely different game. It's not politics like Sam Rayburn and Lyndon Johnson practiced it, where, you know, conservatives disagree with liberals, and we know that we're all going to get together over a scotch tonight and tell great stories and figure out some way to move the ball forward. Because there was jointly a concept of the common good, the public interest. And I really think that's being lost in sheer rancorous partisanship. Well, I know that uh, during the Clinton era, we began seeing such demonization of Clinton and Democrats by these Republicans that eventually they get to power and what they do is so horrible to us that it's hard not for me to turn around and demonize them. Well, I spent eight years uh, watching Bush haters drive themselves absolutely crazy, and I see no good to be accomplished by turning around and doing uh, watching Clinton right, haters yeah. drive themselves absolutely crazy. I see no no good to be accomplished by turning around and doing the same thing to Bush, which is one of the reasons I try not to be a Bush hater. But the other side of it is that there's always a sense with somebody who you disagree with, and I'm sure we've all had this experience that at some point we can come to some kind of agreement. And maybe, even if we both hate the outcome, at least we hate it from different sides, you get the feeling with these folks, they're not going to change. The real political skills are compromise, persuasion, and consensus building. And as a matter of fact, Clinton was a master of all of them. When you look at a guy like Tom DeLay, this is not about compromise, persuasion, and consensus building. This is, we have the votes. It's over for you, buddy. And that's not real politics. I think it's partly, too, because of the way we, we draw districts. Um, one of the things that fascinates me is when they finally took, in the state of Iowa, the process of redistricting, drawing districts from which politicians run, away from partisan politics and put it with a nonpartisan commission, they drew a map of Iowa that makes perfectly coherent political sense, and three of the four congressional districts are hotly contested every two years. That means instead of being from an all-Republican or an all-Democratic district, you as an elected representative, a substantial number of your voters are one are, are whatever you're not, and consequently you have a real reason to listen to them and to figure out how to find solutions that are going to appeal to both sides. That's one of the tragedies of the kind of redistricting that Tom DeLay has just shoved down the throat of Texas.
and the eventually the legislature did give in. The Democrats gave in and let it happen. Were you expecting well, that to go on forever? Or? Well, I'm, it almost did go on forever. Even after the Democrats came home again, uh, the Republicans couldn't agree on a map. It was the silliest thing I have seen in years of governing state politics. It was just a fiasco from beginning to end. And let me add, as one uh, of the members of the press who was embedded with the Democratic troops when they fled to Ardmore, Oklahoma, <laughs> y'all, Ardmore is not a destination vacation spot. Molly Ivins, I'm going to switch gears for a second um, because one of the most astonishing events took place at a book fair last June <laughs> and was broadcast on um, C-SPAN and maybe their highest rated comedy ever. C-SPAN keeps running this pa particular panel from a booksellers convention last June as though it were World Wrestling Federation. I think. <laughs> By C-SPAN standards, this is well, it was a wrestling match. It was a panel featuring Al Franken, Bill O'Reilly, and me and in front of an audience of booksellers in Los Angeles. And O'Reilly and Franken just went at each other to an, an incredible extent. And there I was, sitting between the two of them, praying for my physical safety, uh, trying try to keep mayhem and bloodshed from occurring right there on the podium. It was really pretty funny. If I'd only known that getting sued by Fox News would produce a number one bestseller, I myself would have been a lot ruder to Bill O'Reilly than I was. What do you think of O'Reilly? That is one of the biggest egos I've ever come across. It is all about him. Everything that goes on in the world seems to be filtered through this, you know, huge ego of his. He spent all his time talking about his book, which is supposed to be sort of a right-wing populist thing. And the title of the book should have been, It's All About Me. And I think he's a verbal bully. And I think Al Franken has certainly exposed the fact that he is careless to the point of uh, it being something beyond a mere accident with fact and truth. And, you know, the thing is that people like Rush Limbaugh and Bill O'Reilly don't pretend to be journalists, but people take them that way. That's the danger. They really are sort of niche entertainment. And the fact that they have come to have a huge impact on public debate in this country is really worrisome because they are very, and with O'Reilly's case, you can underline the very, uh, careless about fact and truth. And that was what Al went after with O'Reilly that day. What do you think of people like, say, Ann Coulter? Have you ever met her? No, I never have. Uh, but I have been accused by her of being a traitor to my country. Oddly, oddly enough, I had a lapse of humor over that. Um, I suppose I should have taken the happy thought that I would have been most annoyed if she had left me off her list of traitors. Um, but I didn't view it with much philosophy at the time. I have since calmed down a bit about it. Um, lots of people called me and said, oh, you have got to take this woman on. And my reaction after some thought was, why? Why give her more publicity? Why waste any time on such a pathetic, malicious piece of work? And I, I sometimes get the feeling about a lot of a lot of these folks. You You said in another interview, uh, that you kind of need to track these people, certainly track fundamentalists, and see what exactly is going on in the world. And you have said that. Mm -hmm. I mean, how can we track it if we don't... If, <laughs> if we don't listen. Well, of course, I, I listen to fundamentalist preachers on the radio it's because it's a minor art form in my part of the world. I love listening to a good preacher. 
And um, I feel the, the same way about some of the right-wing talk guys. And I must say, um, it, you know, it is part of the code of the bleeding heart liberal that we never kick people when they're down. And I, that is certainly the way I feel about Rush Limbaugh. I have no impulse at all to gloat over his poor man's personal problems. But I do think there is a useful opportunity for education here, which is the point of the folly of putting people who are addicted to drugs into prison. It doesn't help anything. It crowds up the prisons. It's costing the taxpayers zillions of dollars a year. Here in California, where y'all have started that three strikes and you're out nonsense, your prisons are jammed to overflowing. It costs more to keep somebody in prison than it does to send them to Harvard University anymore. And it's just a ridiculous procedure. And I think, you know, the one good thing that could come out of Mr. Limbaugh's misfortunes is if he would come out and say, look, the world is not going to be better off if I get sent to prison. Molly Ivins, Chris Welch asked you on KPFA about your optimism that Bush is beatable. Yeah. And uh, you said Iraq is a mess. The economy is a mess. We have a growing deficit and Bush must share responsibility for 9-11. On that last point, Michael Moore talks about it a bit. Franken certainly talks about it. You don't talk about it in Bushwhacked. Well, 9-11 happened on Bush's wash. He had been president for nine months, not a full year. So I think it is not unreasonable of the Bush people to say, well, certainly there's shared responsibility here. Um, but when you go back and look at it, um, Clinton's top security advisor, national security advisor, Sandy Berger, met with Condoleezza Rice during the changeover, the handover of power, and said, you're going to be spending more time on terrorism than any other single issue. And apparently both Gore and Clinton had, you know, worried about it. And of course, the response of the Republicans, I don't know if you remember this, but the day Clinton tried to take out Osama bin Laden, when he launched in, in uh, response to the bombing of our embassies in Africa, he launched missile strikes against both Sudan and Afghanistan in an attempt to get bin Laden, and apparently missed by a couple of hours. The absolutely un universal response to, the, to that effort was to say, well, wag the dog, he's just trying to take people's minds off Monica, this is so transparent. I mean, it was universal condemnation by the Republicans of that move. They thought Monica Lewinsky was much more important than Osama bin Laden. Of course, groping by Arnold Schwarzenegger is unimportant. Uh. <laughs> I'm telling you, the beauty of, hypocrisy, of uh, politics is that everybody gets to uh, wind up in the hypocrisy tank sooner or later. <laughs> and, uh, you know, people end up arguing the other side when somebody new on their team comes along and makes the same mistake. Speaking of speaking of um, of that briefly, um, what is your take on Arnold Schwarzenegger and his election for governor? Is it something that we should look at positively? Or? Oh, I I need to speak to y'all in the Bay Area about this. Um, I have been here, of course, for a couple of days, which makes me an expert on all things political in in California. And it is clear to me that people around here are embarrassed and ashamed and appalled by the fact that they have elected Arnold Schwarzenegger governor of this beautiful state. Y'all, y'all, y'all. Wrong, 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 wrong. What you do with an oddity like Arnold Schwarzenegger is you take great pride in it. You say nobody else could have elected a governor like this. Look at this. This is better than having, you know, the world's largest jackrabbit or the world's biggest pecan. I mean, this is the kind of thing that you play up. You say it's part of our oddity, it's part of our strangeness. We actually elected this guy governor of the state. Look at this. Let's be proud of it. Let's let's just enjoy it. 
you know, part of politics is you've got to have a good time. And I always think that part of the function of politics is to put on a show for us. It's like a combination between the zoo and the circus. It's the finest free entertainment in the whole world. And besides, they charge you for the show through your taxes, whether you're paying attention to it or not, so you might as well get some pleasure out of it. And what could be more wonderfully startling than having Arnold Schwarzenegger as governor? I love it. So we should put aside any fears about anything. I mean, my feeling is he can't do anything anyway. Oh, well, there's no way. I mean, he's not nearly as big an incompoop as the governor of Texas. I mean, <laughs> y'all aren't even in the contest. <laughs> if there were one thing to look at in your book, Bushwhacked, Molly Ivins, one thing that stands out, that if I were to go to my conservative friends in Idaho and say, look at this, this is what they've done in order to convince them that maybe Bush should not be reelected, what would it be? Um, I am a populist, and what that means to me, among other things, is that I try to keep my eye on the shell with the P under it. I pay not much attention to the culture wars, social issues. I think they're mostly used by political consultants to separate and divide and make people angry and polarize public opinion. What I am interested in are the sort of eternal questions of politics. Who benefits? Who profits? Who's getting screwed? Who's doing the screwing? And what I want people to look at, because I think the extent to which this, the shift in this country has been extraordinary and chilling when you start to see it in its full size, is the extent to which the tax burden has been shifted from corporations, from business, and from the wealthy to people who can least afford it. People in this country are getting screwed. And we're being preached to about patriotism by people who shelter their money in offshore tax shelters to avoid paying their full share. And it's not as though these people couldn't afford to pay taxes. Of course they can. Um, the, one of our chapters is about a rich guy down in Texas um, who gets so angry at his fellow rich people who won't pay taxes. He goes on these great rants, Bernard Rappaport, the only Jewish socialist insurance millionaire in Waco, Texas. <laughs> What a fabulous character. And, you know, I've actually, I've been on a lot of right-wing talk shows where they say, why should, why should the rich pay more? Why should the rich pay more? I mean, why don't everybody pay more? Well, because they can afford to. I mean, the, the, the principle of the progressive income tax was settled back in 1913. That's how far back these movement conservatives want to roll progressive politics. Back past the New Deal and all those reforms. They want to repeal the progressive income tax. They want to take us back to the 19th century. And what it is doing is putting an absolutely killingly unfair share of the tax burden on working and middle class Americans. They're getting screwed. They need to pay attention. And for the rest of us, what can we do other than you know, maybe give books like Bushwhacked Away. I'm a little shy about giving Al Franken or Michael Moore because they're so, you know, right. they're fire and brimstone. Um, let me make an odd, what, what will sound like an odd recommendation. Um, I think most of the listeners here know, you know, your basic citizenship, vote, register other people to vote, write your elected representative, all that good stuff. Here's something I am just a serious stroke about. I think people with... Uh, liberal left politics need to work real hard at having more fun. 
I think that politics really should be, among other things, not just a source of entertainment, but a source of good times. Use some humor, use some wit, use some imagination. And in Texas, we find that beer is very helpful, too. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews, either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>